Father, we thank you that you are a God who blesses, that you are a God who chooses, selects, predestines, foreordains, and adopts. We thank you for your glory manifest in the crucifixion of your Son for sinners that we might become not part of, but that we might be, that we might become the family of God, truly one, one because of you. Lord, you are wonderful, and we have never known a greater love than the love with which you have loved us. So, Father, we pray that your love would go deep into our souls, that your spirit would speak your love deep into our spirit, deep into our hearts today. And we thank you for this holy scripture through which we know you. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 10. Please turn in your Bibles. And I will begin to read without delay. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's three o'clock as we tell time, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, so that's uh, about noon. He went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them. Let me just pause there. He invited them in to be his guests, okay? These are Gentiles. He's a Jew. That's a big deal. But what just happened is nothing like what is about to happen. It is a big deal that a Jew invited a Gentile into his house to eat with him. But now, something unthinkable is about to happen. A Jew is about to willingly go to the house of a Gentile, fully aware that he's going to be invited in, and he will have to eat with them. Jews do not fellowship with Gentiles. Now, at this point, Peter has already seen Jesus do some pretty radical things, things that were upsetting to a lot of people, right? Remember like uh, when he invited some prostitutes over and then he invited some like chief pastors, like kind of bishops, right? Some like the, of the Pharisees over and, and one of the, and this lady, this lady is like weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her tears and the Pharisees are like, if he knew, like if he were a prophet, you know, like if he knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him, you know? Like he's always doing... Uh, radical things that are upsetting to people. And Peter has been a part of that because he was there at the table with them. But this is different. Although at this point in Acts, Peter has already gone up beside an African Gentile's chariot and gone up into his chariot and sat with him and shared the gospel with him. And Peter, Philip, and John have already gone down to the city of Samaria and taught in many of the villages in that region, which was like way crossing the line. Where I grew up, there was a lot of racism. Um, you were either native or you were white. There were a lot of other ethnicities there, but most people were native or white, and some people were mixed. And if you grew up mixed, uh, people, would, people had slurs for you. They might call you a half-breed or something. Or if you were half Eskimo, half native, you'd be called a half-breed, right? That was like being a traitor, right? And, uh, and the Eskimo kids in the Indian village where I lived were treated horribly. Um, there was a lot of racism. That's what Samaria was like. The Samaritans, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as mixed because they were like half-Gentile, half-Jewish. So for Philip, Peter, and John to go down there and preach in the city of Samaria, that was a big deal. It doesn't say they went in and ate with them. And I kind of wonder if at this point, Peter still has never been in a Gentile's house and eat with them. I don't think he ever has done this. Even though he shared the gospel, I don't think he's crossed that boundary line, right? And by now, Philip himself has made it all the way to Caesarea, where Cornelius is, where Peter's about to go. And uh, interestingly, the gospel doesn't get shared with Cornelius and his family through Philip. Peter is being called, right? And what is about to happen here is different and, frankly, pretty shocking. Like most Jews, Peter's never done this before. And a lot is at stake for him. So let's read on. 
Um, verse 23. He invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, look at like the joyous and affectionate meeting between Peter and this man Cornelius. Peter has been kind enough to come all the way, like a couple days journey, to talk with him and to come to his house. And Cornelius knows Peter's done something that maybe no other Jew would, would be willing to do. He knows that Peter is doing an incredible like, like grace and kindness to travel there and come into his home. He gets it. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He paid him homage. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. Look at the mutuality and the, the respect, the mutual honor these men have for each other already. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You see, everybody knows there's a Jew in the house, right? And I don't think they have a problem with it, except that the Jews are pretty pious, pretty pompous, and pretty prejudiced, right? But they know something's up. This Jew just came into their house. They might not feel uncomfortable with it, but they realize nobody does this. And so the first thing Peter has to do is explain himself. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. If this is a gospel, if this isn't a gospel opportunity, there never was one. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Beep. Stop your stopwatch. I think that was a 60-second sermon. While Peter was still saying these things, and I don't think Peter was done. I think he had about 59 minutes left in his message. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit jumps in. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They should have known. From the time when the people of God came up out of Egypt, what does the scripture say? It says, a mixed multitude came up out of Egypt. It doesn't say only descendants of Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, and only his 12 sons. And it, it, This isn't some kind of like ethnic thing. The Jews for 2,000 years have prided themselves in being the people of God. And they should have known from their scriptures. They should have known from the law of Moses. All through the prophets, they, it says the distant lands. That's everybody but the Jews, right? Maybe there are some Jews that end up there, but that's more everybody but the Jews, right? It says the islands, the coastlands. What, he said, what those scriptures mean is, as far away, if you got on a ship and you sailed that ship across the farthest sea till you ran aground, till you came ashore, those people, those people are gonna hear the light of the gospel and be brought in and become one with the people of God. It's all through the scriptures. They should have known, but sometimes, let's be real, we just don't get the things we should have known. Peter's seen, uh, or Philip has seen Greeks come in and say, we want to see Jesus. And it looks like he's changing the subject, but Jesus answers, now is the time for the Son of Man to be lifted up. He's saying, now I'm going to be nailed to a cross and lifted up for all the world to see that all might believe that I am he, right? That he might reign and ascend to heaven and rule over all the nations and pour out the Spirit on all the Jews wherever they've traveled. No, on all the people. The word came to the Jews first. But thank God, here in Acts 10, it's like the once and for all earth-shattering blow to the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Christ accomplished it at the cross when his blood was shed for all who would believe. And here in Acts 10, now, from now on, everybody gets it. Acts 10 and 11 is the final undoing of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And if God can break down that wall, God can make us one no matter who we are. If God can, if, God, if the Holy Spirit can declare that outcasts are now part of the family of God, then anyone can be saved. 
Anyone who believes. And in this chapter, Peter gets it. This has tremendous implications for how we treat one another, how we act towards outsiders, how we treat one another, how we treat one another when we ourselves fail and screw up big time, because that happens, right? There's grace here. It's the grace of God like we've never seen before. The believers from among the circumcised, you know, Jews are circumcised, right? And non-Jews are not circumcised. And it's like their sign of the covenant. After this chapter, after Acts 10 and 11, circumcision is like done away with in the church. And it's replaced with baptism. And today we're going to have some baptisms. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them? Was there an altar in front of Peter? And he got to the end of his message. He made the altar call. And, you know, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes with every eye bowed and every eye closed, raise your hand if you want to receive Christ, and he saw some hands, or people, you know, everybody who's ready to commit your life to Christ, come forward to the altar, and, some, and one of the ministers will pray with you. No, the Holy Spirit was way ahead of Peter, and we saw through the plot of this storyline that the Holy Spirit was way ahead of Peter. When the vision was given to Peter, the men were already on their way. God is sovereign. This was predestined. God had already been doing this And this was in the heart of God since before he created Adam and Eve, before he created the world. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. This always happens in Acts when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have heard that there are some Christians who think that people can get saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and not speak in tongues. And some people debate that. Uh, I, don't, I think in every, in every instance in Acts, this happens the same way. And there's scriptural evidence for believing that. I think you should consider that. They knew they were baptized in the Holy Spirit because they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So he does. He stays in their guest room. He eats their food. He sits at their table because he realizes there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one blood, And I'm not talking about all of us, of every nation, ethnicity, tribe, background, history, culture, are of one blood from Adam and Eve, and we are. I'm talking about there's one blood, the blood of Christ, and that's what unites us. We can be proud of our cultural distinctiveness, of uh, things about our uh, historical background, things related to our ethnicity. We can take pride in these things. And, and we need not be ashamed nor, uh, nor say we're all the same because we're not. But there is one blood. It's the blood of Christ. And it's the blood of Christ that washes away our sins. And it's the spirit of Christ, the same spirit that ma- who makes us one. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. 
right? Okay. This is an amazing passage. Let's go back to the beginning um, and talk about three more things. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius, a centurion. You know, he's from the Italian cohort. So, uh, so to make sure this regiment would remain loyal to the empire in case there was like a, a political split or something and somebody is trying to get uh, leadership of this army or this general rises up against the empire. Like, these guys are like the loyal of the loyal to the empire. They're Italians. They're, they're born Roman. They're, they're native to Rome. They're not going to defect to some other anti-Caesar leader, right? They're sticking with Rome. They're, right, it's like in their strategy to make sure these soldiers stay loyal. That's important because these guys are like Roman Roman. There's this man, a Roman centurion, who fears God. He fears God, but he doesn't know Christ, right? An angel appears to him. Does the angel share the gospel with him and explain how to be saved through faith in Jesus' name? No. The angel tells him to invite Peter over. Peter's staying in this town, over there at this address, because the gospel doesn't come from angels. It comes from people like you and me, and Brother Peter, sharing the gospel with people one by one, family by family. So God gives them the new birth, and they become part of the family of God. And we disciple them to do all that Jesus commanded and taught. That's the gospel, and that's what it means to be a part of the family of God, to follow Christ. Now, speaking of angels, when we read this today, we're probably thinking something like, wow, a real angel just appeared to this man. That's amazing, right? When you read those first verses, verses one through eight, about the angel appearing to Cornelius, that's what I walk away with. I'm like, wow, an angel. That's kind of like when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, or, you know, some angels appeared to Daniel and stuff in the book of Daniel. I'm like, this almost never happens. This is awesome. That's what I walk away with. Well, if we had been there, if we were Jews, if we were some of Peter's friends and we heard about this, let me tell you that we would have been immediately surprised, worried, and offended. Why? The angel appeared to who? Peter? A Gentile. A Roman. The angel appeared to a Roman. The Ro- Rome is a vicious... Uh, conquering. Rome is like a giant machine made of metal with metal teeth that, go- that gobbles and chews everything up and grinds what's left and tramples on it. Rome has conquered all around the Mediterranean Sea. You know the Middle East? It's like, so you've got Asia, you've got Europe, you've got Africa. Right in between that are these countries in the Middle East. And Israel's there. And the Mediterranean Sea touches Europe, it touches a little bit of Asia, it touches a lot of Africa. And Rome has gone from Italy all around the Mediterranean Sea. They've gone into France, Germany, England, although later. Uh, they've gone into like Iraq, Iran, to in, out to India. They've gone down uh, through Saudi Arabia. They've gone, to, they've gone down into Egypt, Libya, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. What am I missing? Somebody knows geography. We need our maps. 
They've gone everywhere that anybody's ever heard of. They call it the whole world in the Bible, and it's representative of the whole world. They haven't gone to China. They haven't gone to Brazil, right? Uh, they haven't gone to northern Canada. They haven't gone to Southeast Asia. Um, but the gospel will go to those places. But in the Bible, just in the New Testament, when it says the gospel goes out into all the world, this is what it's talking about. It, there are that all the nations are represented here. The Roman world is, like there's another, I think uh, one of the Chinese dynasties was very powerful at this time, but, uh, but Rome is probably the great empire in the whole earth at this time. I'd have to check my history. I think it's the greatest, right? It's kind of central, think of it that way. And nobody likes the Romans. Nobody wants soldiers to come in and say, here, carry my backpack. And they're like, what? I'm, I'm, I'm plowing in my field. It's like, no, carry my stuff. Roman law says a soldier can do that anytime he wants. If he doesn't want to carry his stuff, he can say, all right, take this, and you can carry it one mile, right? And they can, they can heavily tax, they can lay an oppressive tax burden on the people. They've come in and they've imposed their culture, their way of life on the Jews. And let me tell you something about the Jews. The Jews don't want any other way of life or any other rule, and they're more rebellious and resistant to that than perhaps any other nation. Uh, they're, the, the Jews, among all the peoples, hate the Romans maybe the most, and they're constantly rebelling, rioting, and leading un, uh, unsuccessful revolutions, generally unsuccessful. And so here are these conquering Roman soldiers, and they've pressed into service traitors, Jews, to collect their taxes for them. So everybody hates the tax collectors, right? They spit on them, you know? And, and who did the angel appear to? Did he appear to the high priest? Did he appear to lowly Mary? Did he appear to the Apostle Peter or John or James? Did he appear to one of the Roman slaves? That would be okay, I guess. He appeared to a Roman general. He is responsible for crushing our people. This is a horrible, worrisome, offensive thing that God has sent his holy angel to appear to a Roman soldier, and to a commander in their army, no less. They're thinking, why didn't the angel appear to us? Is that why they get so mad at Jesus in Capernaum when he says that the uh, miracles were only done to Wo Woe to you. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. There, uh, like when he says, woe to you, Bethsaida, and woe to you, Chorazin, for if the miracles done and you had been done in, and he names a Gentile town, I think it's specifically a Roman like colony town or something. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Is that the passage? Although that happened more than once. Yes. Another time he said, like, the during the time of Elijah, you know, the, the Elijah, Elisha, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, was he sent to anyone in Israel? No, he was sent to this outsider, right? That's what's happening here. Hmm? Thank you. Name, name in the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath, which I think is either in northern Israel or outside Israel, like Lebanon. Anyway, one more thing. When we read this, we've got to understand something about Jewish culture. Peter talks about clean and unclean. There's like this sheet being let down from heaven. What's on it? Animals, reptiles, birds. How many kinds of them? All kinds of them. 
okay? For 2,000 years, since the law of Moses had been given approximately 2,000 years ago, the Jews had made a distinction in their diet between the clean and the unclean. Raise your hand if you've read Leviticus. I get two-thirds of us. Okay, it's right there in Leviticus. Um, there are these Jewish ceremonial laws, and they have all these details about what to eat and what not to eat. And it's part of God's covenant with the people, with the Jewish people, who are supposed to be God's people. But the storyline of the Old Testament is that over and over and over, pretty much at every opportunity, they immediately forget, forsake God, forget God, and start worshiping idols, whatever idols they can. They're like, the Bible uses some very disturbing language. It says they, they go whoring after all these other gods, right? Um, so in Leviticus, uh, so, so for the Jews, it had been more than 2,000 years since the law was given through Moses. And one of the parts of the law that the Jews took seriously was that they didn't eat unclean food. They ate only the foods designated as clean. So no shellfish, no clams, no lobster, no crawdads, right? No certain kinds of birds, uh, no, no seafood unless it has scales, uh, no reptiles, no snakes, no lizards. Like, so you aren't going like, to go to the country cookout and eat some rattlesnake, okay? Um, you can have chicken, you can have turkey, uh, you can have, you know, a few things. You can have um, beef, you can have lamb, you've you got your mutton. You, you can't eat a camel. You shall not eat a pig. Uh, you shall not eat any kind of shellfish. Um, no, no shark fin soup. There's no... There's no, like, sea creature. You're not eating eel. I don't think that was on the list. I have to check. Uh, there are all these creatures that they're told, that's detestable for you. That's detestable. You may eat these things. They're clean. That's detestable. You have to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. You have to make a distinction between the holy and the profane. This is written in law in their culture, and it becomes a part of their identity. Do the Jews follow the law of Moses, which can be summarized in... You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Samaritans, right? Gentiles. And that's the summary of the law in, in a few words. And the Ten Commandments is a little bit longer summary of it. Um, but there are all these other ceremonial laws uh, destined to point to Christ, to be fulfilled by him, and Christ on the cross has undone the, the clean and the unclean thing, but he's written it into their culture and their history. The Jews followed this, and they followed it strictly. What does Peter say? Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean or common. It's never entered my mouth. That's the norm in Israel, Right? One of the parts that Jews took seriously was that they didn't eat unclean food. They only ate the food designated as clean. No pork chops. To Peter, if you didn't follow these rules, you aren't a Jew. If you don't do this, you're no longer part of the family. Being part of the family, part of the community, was everything to them. Their main desires in life were for honor, for themselves, honor for their community, and to not be ashamed and to not be cast out of their extended family community. 
And they wanted lots of kids, and they wanted their kids, all the kids, not just like the firstborn or the smartest or the brightest or whatever. Um, they wanted their kids to have big, extended families and the whole community be honored and to not be ashamed. That's why the psalmist is always praying in the Psalms, Lord, do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies triumph over me, because that's a disgrace, and because when your enemies triumph, people die and the community shrinks. Let me not be ashamed, right? So what's happening here in Acts 10 is not that Peter is grossed out because he doesn't like that kind of food. Like, I don't like the crunchiness. You know, that's too squishy. It's much deeper than, well, I've never eaten that kind of food before, which is also true. If Peter eats the common food, he'll become common. He'll become unclean. If Peter embraces the food of the Gentiles, he'll become unclean like one of them. If he does that, he'll be separated from his people and become an outcast and will be ashamed. His children will not be like Jews, they'll be like the detestable Samaritans. Jews who had long ago mixed with the Gentiles. For Peter, this isn't about food. This is about losing everything. And here in Acts 10, he's faced with a choice. If God asks me to give up everything I ever had or valued, will I do it? And Peter's like, surely not, Lord, for nothing unclean or impure has ever entered my mouth. This is the Apostle Peter. So this is what's at stake here. And so God lets the God graciously gives him the vision three times. Get up, Peter, killing it, you know. It's not go out to the back and if you want chicken for dinner, slaughter a chicken and prepare it for your family. It's Peter, go go kill a snake. Peter, go kill a go kill a, you know, a Salam, I don't know, you know, go eat your eel, go make crawfish, go make crayfish, eat some crawdads. You know, we're having shrimp gumbo tonight. Go ahead, Peter, kill it, eat it, right? And he's like, no way, Lord, I've never, I would never, I have never. And he's like, Peter, what God has called clean, do not call common or detestable or unclean, right? This is such a clear and powerful vision. It's obvious that all of the creatures on this sheet, just like there are four directions on the compass, north, south, east, west. And in old-fashioned times, they said the four uh, corners of the earth. And there's the saying in history, the four winds, the north wind, the south wind, the west wind, the east wind, right? Uh, it's being let down by four corners. And what's on it? All kinds of creatures. It's clearly representative of all the animals, the fishes, the, God, the birds that God made. It obviously means all the people in the world. Peter is a, a literary expert, I think we could say. He's read the Bible, and he's read it in a literary way. He sees the, the, the themes and the, the imagery and the symbols. He gets it. I think he gets it, don't you? And yet, what does it say? Peter's left wondering at the vision. It's like, God wouldn't say that, would he? Would he? Has God ever said something to you that, was, that you didn't have room for in your theology? I didn't believe that charismatic Christians, I thought charismatic Christians who believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when I started coming to this church uh, about 12 or so years ago, I thought that there are some really good Christians here. They love the Lord. You know, they got a lot of good things going on. But they believe in 
that like assembly of God stuff and like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I was taught like that ended with the apostles when they died. You know, God doesn't do that anymore. That was a special thing because the gospel was going out. And now he doesn't, we don't need that. We have the scripture. So why would we need that? You know, and you know, don't elevate something above the scripture, right? And that's, that's the kind of jargon and terminology I grew up with. And I didn't believe that. I thought Grace Christian Fellowship Charismatics or uh, who believed in like casting out demons and being, I mean like every, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So why do I need the Holy Spirit again? You know? And uh, pastor tried to get me to do a Bible study on it. He's like, we should do a Bible study on the Holy Spirit. And I was like, for about two years. And I thought I was real biblical. And I wouldn't, wasn't willing to do a Bible study to study out something that was against what I already knew to be true from the Bible. Because I grew up in that kind of evangelical pietism. And one of the marks of it is, it's a debilitating thing. It's that it's, everything's black and white. And what I grew up with was white. And everything else is black, right? Just even using that language is kind of disturbing because it brings up echoes of racism in our culture. You know, one of our deep cultural sins, right? And, and that's kind of the, the mindset I grew up in. And Peter's still got a lot of that in him, even though he's already, you know, he's like the Apostle Peter. Okay, so this is what's going on. This is what's at stake for Peter, and Peter goes with them willingly. And he's got to explain himself, and he goes in knowing we're going to have a meal together. That's like as intimate as it gets among friends, right? We're going to sit at a table, we're going to talk, we're going to look each other in the eye, like this far away from each other, and we're going to eat the same food, and my hand's going to dip into the hummus or whatever, and your hand's going to dip into the hummus, and we're both going to take a bite, and there's a loaf of bread being passed around, think your, your pita bread, you know, and, and it's going to get torn, and I'm going to eat a piece of that bread, and you're going to eat a piece of that bread, and it kind of implies we're all of the same loaf. And, and this is the gospel that Christ came to preach to the world. So what exactly does this mean? The Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. First, there are all kinds of implications for how we treat all kinds of fellow Christians. And it boils down to this. If God has accepted somebody, they're family. No matter who they are or what they have done, they're our family now. And that adoption into the family of God occurs the moment a sinner comes to Christ, which happens invisibly, although there are outward signs, signs of life, ways we can normally tell if someone is a disciple. And no matter how bad a fellow disciple screws up, drops the ball, sins, or leaves you hanging, that person is accepted by God. The blood of Christ has paid for all their sins. They're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And they don't lose their place in line. They're family. They don't have to sit in the back. There, isn't such a th there is such a thing as a false convert, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a churchgoer who isn't a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but that's not what this passage is talking about. In this passage, the Holy Spirit says, outcasts are now part of the family of God. The Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles is God going out from the Holy of Holies and selecting those who are unworthy, unclean, detestable in the sight of the world, who never did anything right, 
who don't have good, a good background or a good family. You know, they were never loved. They were never accepted. They stutter. They're dumb. They're ugly. They're all of the things that I think every one of us has felt. <clears throat> in our culture, in evangelical pietism, that uh, stream of religious thinking that most of us who grew up religious grew up in, there's this big idea of acceptance uh, as we are, and it often gets uh, turned, or I'm going to say twisted, to whatever I'm like, I'm accepted. And our generation has a deep need to have an image to make sure other people know who we are and to express ourselves. Not every generation thinks that way, but ours does. But a better perspective, a more biblical perspective, is that all of us are sinners. All of us have broken the law of God. And these, and that's what makes us an outcast. It wasn't, I was treated bad in middle school, or my dad didn't love me, but God accepts me. True. The biblical picture here is deeper than that. It's, I never had hope. I never had a God in the world. I was pursuing my own pleasures. I hated or ignored God, same thing. Um, and constitutionally, in my very genes, in my very spirit, I love sin, right? And in this chapter, the Holy Spirit is choosing not the the best, the people who look the best among their community or society, he's choosing ones such as these. And he's going out to them. And he's, he's leaving the holy of holies. And he's condescending to earth, which is the greatest journey anyone has ever traveled. Think of the humility of Christ. All of this, all of this is designed by God to give us some glimpse, some window into the incredible humility of Christ when he came down from the holy of holies in heaven to become unclean for us, that we might become clean. In this passage, we're the unclean creatures on that sheet. We're the Gentiles in that story. And we actually are the Gentiles in that story, every one of us, right? Now, let's turn our eyes upon Christ as we prepare to close. Christ became unclean so that we who were sinners and therefore outcasts, dishonored and enslaved to our sin, would be made righteous and honored and not ashamed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ and accepted and adopted into the family of God just as we are. And he brought us in to keep us and to recreate us as a new family community after the image of Christ, who died for our sins to redeem us from the curse of the law. The Holy Spirit says to us in this passage, outcasts are now part of the family of God. And while we look in gratitude when the Holy Spirit breaks down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, when we turn our eyes on Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, slain for us, when we remember that he humbled himself, becoming a man, laying aside his glory in heaven. We stand in awe at the holiness and the kindness of God. Please stand with me as we close.
God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's happening in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you because no one has ever loved us like you have. And we thank you for giving us this glimpse, this window, all of these things about the clean and unclean and the Jews and the Gentiles, and you wrote it into their cultural history and their identity, and then you broke it down. And then you brought everybody together. And we pray, Lord, that you would put in us faith and that you would continue to increase our faith as your disciples prayed. But Lord, we pray that we would act on the faith that you've given us and that we would act on the faith you've given us by perceiving and glorifying you as one who became unclean for us, one who was in every sense perfect, ultimately clean and holy. And of course, we know well we are nothing like that, nor will we be. And yet, your righteousness has been spread wide over all of us and it covers us together. And Lord, we pray that as we meditate on these things, it would change our hearts towards each other and that you would undo perhaps generations of bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment. We pray that you'd undo grudges and um, ill will told one another in our hearts. We pray that you'd undo the um, whatever divides us, whether we have thoughts in our hearts of looking down on each other for ethnicity like Peter had, for, uh, for, for being whatever is like being Roman, uh, for doing something wrong to others, uh, for making mistakes. Lord, we pray that you would undo all of our ill will and you would cause us to view each other as you view us through the righteousness of Christ. Sanctify our minds, Lord, and make us one. 